You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to the Book of Nature podcast. Normally this podcast features three Christians who work in the sciences who love to talk about all things science. But this episode is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network's annual Halloween crossover event. Uh, so previous crossovers have involved topics uh, such as Alfred Hitchcock uh, and the pantheon of Universal Studios monsters. You can find those by searching through our back catalog of episodes. Uh, this year, uh, we are focusing our attention on the sizable literary output of Stephen King. Joining me today are co-hosts Jay Eldred and Jordan Poss. Jay Eldred is a teacher, a contributor to several of the shows in the Christian Humanist Radio Network, and co-author of the recently published book Stories in the End, Short Letters from a Long Life. If you are interested in learning more about Jay and his book, you can find uh, Danny Anderson's interview with Jay over at Christian Humanist Profiles, one of our sister shows in this network. Jay, how are things going in North Carolina? Well, things have finally cooled down here in eastern North Carolina. Last week it was up over 100, and today it's um, about 70 or so. Sliding down the map, Jordan Poss teaches history and Western Civ at Piedmont Technical College in Greenwood, South Carolina. Uh, Jordan has also appeared in several of our other Christian humanist shows, and his most recent book is the historical novel uh, Griswoldville. Uh, Jordan, what's going on in your neck of the woods? Grading, grading, grading. Uh, I am looking forward to actually listening to the final version of this episode, because that means we will be past midterms, and I will be much much better rested. Yeah, I can relate. We're about to go into midterms, and then it's going to be grading, grading, grading. Yeah. <laughs> But it's good, yeah. All right. Uh, and for any new listeners, I am Charles Hackney, one of the regular hosts of the Book of Nature and Associate Professor of Psychology at Briarcrest College and Seminary, which is either located in a secluded and ghost-infested patch of the Rocky Mountains or in Cairnport, Saskatchewan. Either way, the winters are harsh. So I round this trio out to make uh, three published writers, in my case, uh, the 2010 nonfiction book, Martial Virtues. So, uh, getting the ball rolling, I uh, figured we should uh, start things off with a bit of biographical information uh, about the, uh, the man himself, uh, especially since, uh, as we are recording this, the, none of the other contributions to this crossover event have dropped yet, so we're not entirely sure how much King... Uh, everyone else is covering. So uh, let's start this off with you, Jordan. So we'll uh, give this one to you. Could you give us a brief bio uh, for Mr. Stephen Edwin King? Well, uh, one of the primary facts that you need to know about Stephen King, and you will immediately get if you read any of his books, uh, is that he's born, born in Maine. Uh, it's almost kind of a joke that almost all of his books feature alcoholic writers from Maine. Um, I mean, write what you know. Uh, yeah, virtually the only one that I've, I've read that doesn't have some kind of connection to that is The Green Mile, and I'm sure I'm sure there's something snuck in there somewhere. Um, 
uh, but anyway, uh, he's from Maine. Uh, I think I, I, it, I cannot believe I, I neglected this, but I did not actually get a birth date on him. Uh, but I believe he's born in like the early 1950s, possibly the late 1940s. Uh, he's about the right about the right age for that. Um, grows up in Durham, Maine, which is relatively small, relatively rural. Uh, m- most of what I'm uh, drawing this biographical information from is just kind of a little bit that I, I just know. Also from his a very very good book, uh, writing a memoir of the craft, which is both a really good book about writing and writing fiction, but also a uh, functions as kind of an autobiography uh, of sorts, and it's it's quite vividly and quite compellingly written. Um, it's it's also extremely funny, uh, but it, but it's interesting the way um, these very strange chances play a role in his early life. So a. a, a Something that you would not immediately think is uh, really, really important is that as a kid playing in the woods with his older brother, uh, he once made the mistake of um, answering nature's call and cleaning up after himself with poison ivy. Oh, uh, um, oh no. Yeah, he yeah he actually did that. Uh, the thing that everybody jokes about every time they go camping. Uh, it actually had enormous consequences for him. I bet. Because yeah. I think, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, he was extremely ill because of it. Because I, I, I think, in addition to the natural consequences of poison ivy, he had some kind of sensitivity or allergy to it. Uh, so he was so sick, so horribly, uh, and I believe it affected uh, some some of the rest of his body. Like, you know, he had he had like kind of secondary infections from uh, for other issues involving, I think, his eardrums and his tonsils and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, he was about four, and this delayed him going to kindergarten. So he was held back a year. Okay. Yeah, hmm. which, which again, he, he relates it in a very funny way. Uh, but what that meant was that another major early event, and I'm, I'm going to want to jump back and forth a little bit here. But a major, another major event of his young life is that uh, because he was held back a year because of this strange scenario, uh, on his senior trip to New York City. He was actually old enough, unlike the rest of his class, to buy liquor uh, and got drunk for the first time on his senior trip, uh, which he relates in uh, both hilarious and tragic detail in his book. Um, That kicked off a really serious alcohol problem, Um, just apparently had that natural that natural bent. And he said, you know, that was combined with a very quickly acquired habit of making excuses for himself. Um, and so, uh, that was 1966 when he was a senior in high school. So, um, yeah, if he, if he was 19, that would be 1947 was his birthday. Um, so just figuring that out. So, uh, by night, he said by 1975, when he was writing the shining, he had already figured out that he was an alcoholic, but was kind of trying to hide from that fact. And, uh, that tension, that struggle is something that I think we're going to see a lot of as we examine the book. Um, by the early eighties, he had a drug habit to go along with that. Uh, I remember it, it's been quite a while since I've actually read this memoir, but I remember I remember the history he relates very very vividly. Uh, he doesn't even remember writing Cujo because he was so on things like cocaine at the time, uh, and eventually was you know drinking mouthwash and doing all you know all kinds of really really serious stuff, and uh, eventually w- way beyond the book that we're going to be talking about. Eventually was able to get clean. Um, uh, I think in the mid to late nineties. And uh, apparently has stayed clean, at least as far as I can tell. I've not, I've not really sought to keep up with his personal life because I kind of like to, uh, 
I, I kind of try not to with the writers that I enjoy. I know enough of his opinions that I try not to seek out others. That's one major trajectory of his life that I think matters for the context of The Shining. Uh, as for his writing life, though... Uh, that that is, I mean, he he is a writer. That is that is where he's made his mark. Uh, he uh, has always enjoyed stories. And growing up in a relatively small town, relatively rural Maine in the 1950s, uh, interacted with all kinds of very strange and interesting people, uh, all kinds of very colorful characters. I, I know enough people from Maine to know that it is uh, just bountifully endowed with characters. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but, uh, it, you know, and I'm from small town mountain, Georgia, so we've got lots of those, but, but they are of a different type in Maine for sure. Um, some of which, uh, he reworked into some kind of fictional form in a lot of, especially a lot of his early fiction. Uh, there are a variety of incidents that inspired, uh, just not, not entire stories, but moments, right? His books are not strictly autobiographical, uh, but moments, especially in early works like Carrie. Uh, Salem's Lot, and especially The Shining, which is uh, I, th- I think a little bit a little bit atypical for his overall body of work in a couple of ways that maybe we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, but he uh, really got into movies and television, and was particularly drawn to uh, horror. Big surprise. Uh, and uh, one major early influence on him was somebody he actually name drops and cribs quite a lot from in The Shining, and that's Edgar Allan Poe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I am an unreconstructed fan of Edgar Allan Poe, even though I know he's a bit of a whipping boy for the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Um, I love me some Poe, uh, and King did too. And the, the main way he came to Poe, uh, crucially, is through the really, really, really loose uh, – I believe they were Hammer horror films. Uh, the, the Vincent Price adaptations of Poe from the 1960s. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, which, yeah like there was a pit in the pendulum – yeah, uh, follow the House of Usher. Yeah, um, right. I think there may have even been like a black cat, and uh, he he watched all of those and apparently just absorbed them like a sponge. So he's uh, a lot of his very early stories were simply his own fictional retellings of these movies that he watched based on Edgar Allan Poe short stories, and they came they came out quite grotesque. And he actually got in trouble. Uh, a couple of times at school for working these up on a, on a believe like a some sort of crude mimeograph machine and distributing them to friends, uh, which is quite hilarious. Uh, he also did you know a lot of other kind of typical precocious young kid writer stuff like writing short stories and, and little jokey articles for news newspapers and things. Uh, his big break came as a writer, working on novels and you know. Uh, uh, submitting short stories and novels with not really any serious success uh, as a uh, when he was uh, married relatively relatively early in his marriage I think he was working as a, a high school English teacher uh, and working without an agent um, which you're not supposed to do but he successfully did actually for quite a lot quite a lot of his career um, just sent unsolicited the manuscript for Carrie to a publisher. Which they uh, not only accepted, but wrote back with a huge advance check on it. They they wanted that book so badly, uh, and it went on to be a immediate bestseller. Uh, spawned the movie, which also helped him move more copies and uh, set up a large and appreciative audience for all of the books of his that were on the way down the pipe already at that time. Um, I think that's I think that's all we need really for for 
straight up biography. Uh, we could get a little bit more detailed about exactly what in his life went into the shining though. But, uh, uh, Jay or Charles, what else would y'all add to that? Uh, well, so, uh, a quick, uh, quick Google search for Stephen King, uh, does confirm, uh, your date, uh, for the birth. Uh, his birth date, uh, was September 21st, 1947. Uh, so, so yeah. And, uh, I'm just going to chime in that uh, I am also a huge fan of Edgar Allan Poe, and I distinctly remember uh, yelling, and I, I think I actually uh, you know, posted a rather um, miffed comment <laughs> uh, when that Christian Humanist uh, podcast on Edgar Allan Poe dropped, and they were you know, bagging on him all over the place, and I'm going, hang on! You that, that, is actually, Poe. That, that is actually the second episode I ever listened to. And you uh, stuck with him. I'm, All right. Yeah. Uh, I do wish they would go back and fix the spelling of his name, though. So, uh, mm-hmm. David, Michael, Nathan, whoever does that, <laughs> uh, it's A-L-L-A-M. Okay. So, uh, Stephen King's first short story was published in 1967. So, that would be, you know, he's 20 when he did that, if we're doing our math right. Uh, the Shining mm-hmm. was published in 1977, and King is still writing in 2019. So, Jay... Uh, how does The Shining fit within King's career, uh, and do you have any interesting stories for us about the writing of this novel? Boy, do I. Um, this is King's third published novel. It follows Carrie and Salem's Lot. His agent actually advised him not to write it because he felt it would uh, typecast him or set him as a horror writer, which apparently King had absolutely no problem with doing. So it was his first hardback bestseller, and it was one of his first stories not to be set entirely in Maine. A little bit to add on to what Jordan was saying about it being autobiographical. Like much of his other work, you can read into King's work some parts of his of his life. So we have an alcoholic writer. But the story itself was inspired by a trip that King and his wife took. I think it was to Denver, Colorado and they stayed in the Stanley Hotel, where they visited on the last day of the season. They were the only guests in the hotel. They were put into room 217, which was supposedly the haunted room of the hotel. They, um, well, King himself had a dream of his youngest son being chased by a fire hose, and that image features prominently in The Shining, uh, the book, not the movie. Some other things that happened on the trip, he remembered the emptiness and the loneliness of the long hotel corridors with no one there. They went to dinner, and theirs was the only table that was set for dinner. All the others had been put up and covered. His his bartender for the evening was was named Grady, so that name makes an appearance in The Shining as well. There's quite a bit that's there, which, uh, to go on a slight aside... Maybe you all have an idea about this, but most authors put in some kind of disclaimer that this is a work of fiction, and any similarities are purely coincidental. But really, how coincidental is this? Major plot points come up from this one trip that King took. Any ideas? How might that square with the note in the front? There are many beautiful hotels in the world, and in Colorado, but the hotel in these pages is based on none of them. The overlook and the people associated with it exist wholly within the author's imagination. 
Is that true? Is that a lie? What do y'all think? I mean, it, it, it's lawyer speak. It's just so that you know nobody gets sued. I don't. I, I don't actually know anybody who bothers to read that disclaimer before they get into the novel. <laughs> okay. Well. Yeah. I'd, so yeah, I'd say I, it's I, I could that write one. a. Uh, <laughs> I, I could write a fiction story about uh, you know uh, care, uh, a, an alcoholic writer named uh, uh, Shivan Schming. Uh, and just put in there, yeah, totally, uh, totally coincidental, no resemblance, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's you know, for for all of its uh, inspirations and resemblances to the Stanley Hotel, I mean, it is still essentially made up. Okay, um, I, I just wondered about that. Um, I guess getting I, back, I think we're assuming that uh, this Grady bartender at uh, at that time hadn't actually you know killed anybody. Right. He was was not an axe murderer. Um, As far as The Shining goes, the title comes from a a John Lennon song called Instant Karma, called We All Shine On, which I have not listened to and didn't listen to before this episode. Have you all heard it before? I have not. No. No. Okay. And um, interestingly, King wrote both both a prologue and an epilogue, which got cut from the overall book. Uh, they did release a, a limited edition copy uh, in the last few years that had both the prologue and the epilogue. I haven't been able to find the epilogue online, but if you search Stephen King before the play, you can read the epilogue or sorry the prologue that's been put up, which gives a lot of the history of the hotel things that were only hinted at in the act- in the in the original novel. So we get a short history of the builder and how the how uh, Bob Watson lost lost the hotel it explains why the topiary is the way that it is um we we get the idea that that these uh that the hotel was pretty much cursed literally from its foundation as soon as guests start showing up misfortunes start happening uh, the very night that that it opens one of the guests chokes to death on a piece of steak so there's things like that um and so what we're reading in the book is nothing new for the hotel and apparently the the uh, epilogue is called After the Play, but I haven't been able to find that available online. Yeah, and the the edition that I've got and that I read is was not the special edition, so I haven't seen that either. No, um, and apparently one of the other places to find it was like in a TV guide, either from 1995 or 1997. <laughs> I'll get right on that. but anyway those are that's the uh, interesting thing that i found about the about the book in fact i think personally i enjoyed the uh the prologue i think it helped tie everything together but that's just my opinion and i i i'm not nor will i ever be king's editor so (laughs) whatever all right listeners uh before we get into this next section i feel a moral obligation to include a spoiler warning. So from this point on, we will be discussing the contents of The Shining, encompassing the novels and, if we have time, film adaptations. So, like angry wasps and murderous ghosts, from this point on there are spoilers everywhere, lurking around every corner, and they just won't die. So, if you have not yet read the novel uh, or seen the Kubrick film, Uh, Stop this episode now, close the door to room 217, and don't come back until you're ready for spoiler-filled discussion. 
He pauses. He waits. He remembers an angry outburst in his uh, younger days. Okay, now that you're back, let's do this. All right, Jordan, it falls to you uh, <laughs> to give us a summary of the plot of The Shining. Okay, uh, thematically, I really like Stanley Kubrick's uh, one-sentence summary, which is that The Shining is the story of a family slowly going crazy together, um, or quietly going insane together, something like that, uh, which I think adequately kind of fills it in. Uh, basically, um, so I, I don't know what the prologue or the epilogue add. Uh, I'm, I'm actually quite a fan of Elmore Leonard's dicta not to uh, or to, to avoid prologues. Um, and I do, I do. While I might later have some complaints about a little bit of sloppiness in The Shining, I think um, leaving some of those threads dangling actually helps build the mystery and the tension. But uh, essentially, uh, the guts of the story, the the, the heart of the story, is uh, the Torrance family, who uh, are natives of New England. Um, uh, I think it's heavily implied that it's Maine. I'm not sure where any of the towns they mention are, but I, I don't think he explicitly says Maine. Uh, Jack, uh, the father, is an alcoholic writer uh, working on a play rather than a novel this time, uh, a play set in a kind of elite New England prep school. Kind of a weird dead poet society kind of thing that he's worked out based on a couple of aspects of his own personality. Um, when we meet Jack, he is uh, interviewing at the Overlook Hotel, having moved to Colorado. Uh, a old colleague of his at his uh, New England prep school has done him a big fat favor by getting him this interview to uh, take on a, a potentially lucrative but difficult position as the caretaker over, of the Overlook, because the Overlook is deep, deep in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, it is inaccessible through most of the winter, so for about five months a year, uh, they actually shutter the place, uh, just leave somebody behind to keep the boiler going so that the elements don't destroy the hotel, and uh, that is the job that he's interviewing for. Uh, pre it is heavily hinted uh, and eventually made explicit that previous caretakers have uh, gone crazy. Uh, the most famous example being Grady, uh, who a couple of years before this one, it's actually a lot more recent than in the film version. Uh, a couple of years before this takes place had uh, for some reason gone crazy and murdered his wife and kids and himself uh, during the months they spent at the Overlook. Uh, despite that, and despite his misgivings about the job, and despite his loathing of his boss, uh, and it is, and we get nothing but loathing for the Ullman character, who's sort of the matter of this whole thing. Um, Jack takes on the position. Uh, we then meet Wendy, his wife. She's in a very difficult position because she's trying to make this marriage work, uh, but she's a little bit hopeful because currently Jack is back on the wagon despite his previous uh, enormous struggles with alcohol. Uh, and I think this is probably the best structured part of the book, where the, all of this information is very gradually doled out, and we get it kind of very organically integrated uh, in a way that helps increase the tension, helps build, you know, like re really show us who the characters are. Uh, we see where she has been uh, adjusting to life in Colorado after having moved most of the way across the country from New England after Jack got fired from the prep school, uh, not because of his alcoholism, but because he had lost his temper with a student he caught, uh, a disgruntled student that he caught uh, slashing his tires, uh, who he knocked down, the kid hit his head. Uh, the kid was expelled, and Jack was fired, but, but one of his former colleagues has done him the favor of getting him this job interview to work for this hotel that the former colleague has a stake in. Then we meet Danny, and Danny is uh, where 
that Danny is where the real action is at in the story. Uh, and he has this, uh, his parents think of him as an imaginary friend named Tony, but he, he actually sees a little boy usually at a distance who comes and shows him things. Uh, and they are sometimes things that are going to happen, things that have happened, uh, things that are happening. Uh, he has second sight or some kind of telepathic insight into things that are going on around him. Uh, he's just he's just this side of being able to bilocate uh, in terms of what he can and uh, often does figure out. Uh, it's just a little weird. It's just one of these kind of strange little kid traits um, as far as his parents are concerned. But it's going to be uh, his his powers, for lack of a better word, are going to enormously kind of expand and become both more dangerous and put them in greater danger over the course of the book. So the family moves into the hotel right at the end of the tourist season. Uh, and then we meet Dick Halloran, the elderly uh, black um, head chef or cook for the hotel, who we discover in what is a really, really good scene in both the book and the later Kubrick film. Uh, we discover that he also has the same gifts that Danny does. And from that, from him, we get the term The Shining, which he says is what his, uh, I think he says she's Creole, his grandmother, uh, what she used to call it, uh, the ability to shine. He says lots of people have a little bit of shine to them, but uh, Danny has this enormous, enormous quantity of the gift, which uh, makes Halloran concerned for both him and the family as they're moving into this place that Halloran, before he leaves, he actually takes Danny aside and, and tells him about the shining and about this gift. He sort of demonstrates it, but he also tells him, uh, he uh, tries to tell him that you know, the hotel is kind of a bad place and bad things have happened there. But if Danny sees anything that scares him none of these things that he'll see can hurt him if he just closes his eyes and uh, for him definitely 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 you know to stay out of room 217 uh, eventually the family gets snowed in and i think the uh trying to skim along pretty quickly uh at this point uh stephen king does a really good job uh you know playing to his some of his strengths here of actually breathing life into this little family in their deep deep isolation in this uh Un, unbeknownst to most of them, uh, deep in their isolation in this hostile environment. Gradually, uh, it becomes very, very clear that the Overlook is not all it seems to be. Uh, there are hedge animals, topiaries out front that uh, very clearly move uh, when you're not looking at them and seem to behave in aggressive, predatory ways. Uh, there are lesser issues like uh, trying to maintain uh, the boiler pressure in a way that won't blow the hotel up. And uh, trying to repair the roofs, trying to put all the shutters on the windows, uh, a wasp's nest that seems to come back to life after a bug bomb uh, seemingly destroys it, uh, all these other little things. Virtually the only person who's un seemingly unaffected by this stuff is Wendy. She's just sort of a witness to these things for at least a little while, but eventually she is actually seeing stuff too. Uh, and if things finally begin to spiral out of control, when Jack... Uh, Man, <laughs> there's so much going on in the book. Uh, <laughs> Jack, yeah, it, it is. We'll talk about the movie later. Uh, the movie really significantly strips this down. Uh, but things finally spin out of control when Jack uh, sees the thing with resentment that's always kind of been latent, but that the hotel manages to aggravate. Uh, somehow the hotel manages to hook him up with some booze, even though all of the alcohol has been removed for the winter. Um he almost gets almost psychosomatically drunk, uh, and then he begins uh, first imagining things and then actually 
seeing things. So at first he imagines a bartender named Lloyd, and then there actually is a bartender there. Not exactly ghosts, but people from past eras who are freely intermingling in the different parts of the hotel, particularly the bar area. Uh, we gradually learn more about kind of the evil that's come to pass in the hotel. It's been used as a brothel at some point in the past. Uh, it's been owned for a long time by a guy who uh, at first seems to be really clearly modeled on like a Howard Hughes type, uh, kind of uh, reclusive, secretive millionaire who's involved in armaments and aviation and filmmaking and things like that. Uh, apparently he's used the hotel kind of as a, like, a private hedonistic resort for a while and just all kinds of nasty stuff has been happening in the hotel uh, for whatever reason, wants Danny. It wants to possess Danny and add him almost to its collection. Uh, and in order to accomplish that, it kind of tricks Jack into thinking that he is the desirable one. And uh, Trust starts to use these very, very slight interpersonal jeal- jealousies and uh, resentments, b- builds those into something explosive and turns the family on itself. Uh, finally, Danny is able to call to Miami for help from uh, Dick Halloran, who uh, in Dick, Dick, I think, is the real hero of the book. Uh, and I think the last part of the book, the most compelling sections are actually his attempts, to, his increasingly frantic attempts to get to the Overlook Hotel through uh, late flights into Denver on icy runways and then renting a car in a blizzard and trying to get a hold of somebody who's going to be able to get him a snowmobile and travel 40 miles into the mountains and uh, attacked by the hedge animals and all kinds of stuff. Uh, finally gets up there, is able to... Uh, uh, is, is able to uh, come finally come to the rescue of Danny and Wendy at pretty great personal cost to himself, even though he does not actually die in the book. Uh, and uh, the three of them escape when uh, the boiler finally, you know, because Jack has been so distracted with trying to kill his family, the boiler builds up too much pressure in the basement, explodes, destroys the hotel, and uh, we end several months later with Wendy and Danny and uh, Dick reunited and kind of reflecting on the events and what they've lost. Uh, that's the short, slightly less hairy version of it. Anything y'all would have had. This <laughs> sounded good to me. <laughs> and, well, it is. Speaking as uh, someone who has uh, driven in winter conditions many times, I've got to agree with uh, your uh, your reaction to the, the scenes where, uh, where Dick is trying to make his way uh, up to the hotel. It's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that that's some very well written stuff, and a really yeah. a, a very, I, I yeah, I get the impression that King has driven in the winter more than once. Yeah, uh, and <laughs> knows what it's like to be on the brink of losing control of your vehicle and sliding into the uh, the ditch just because of how bad the conditions are. Absolutely, and one of the things I appreciate about Dick Halloran too is just his very his very basic goodness. I mean, he's just doing this because it is the right thing. He reflects a number of times that he really doesn't owe anything to Danny Torrance, and yet he must do this thing, which uh, also really gives him a a level up in hero heroism. Definitely. All right, so listeners, time for the psychologist to get a little bit psychological. So <laughs> my section, I'm, I mean, I'm not going to do a really deep dive in this because, well, frankly, we don't have the time. And uh, if you start looking at psychological analyses of The Shining, my goodness, you're going down a rabbit hole. There, I've, I've found <laughs> Freudian interpretations, Jungian interpretations, uh, application of uh, cognitive neuroscience. Uh, there's just all kinds of stuff going on here. Uh, I'm just going to hit uh, just some of the, you know, the really big obvious ones. 
So, yeah, as mentioned, so yeah, in his book on writing, King talks about his own struggles with alcoholism, and uh, he says that he had written The Shining without realizing at the time that he was writing about himself. Uh, elsewhere, he says that part of his inspiration for the story was his own bursts of violent anger towards his children, uh, even though he uh, did not enact them, the, the fact that he experienced them, and how much these bursts horrified him. He, King talks about mm -hmm. how, well, you know, still completely loving his children, there's still these moments where something in him's thinking, if he doesn't shut up, if he if he doesn't shut up, I'm yeah. So, listeners, I'm clenching my fist while I'm doing that because uh, <laughs> clearly uh, that kind of visual representation is exactly what a podcast needs. Anyway, yeah, so yeah, I think I think many of us can relate to that. Uh, I can certainly relate to that. And, you know, parenting pushes us in a lot of directions harder than we thought we could take. Uh, yeah, parenting's hard. So, yeah. <clears throat> so King's drawing from these sources. And he gives us the character of Jack Torrance. And that's what I'm going to focus on here. So, so uh, one of the big themes is the, the transmission of unhealthy patterns across the generations. Uh, so Jack's father was an abusive alcoholic, uh, and in Jack the pattern is continuing. Uh, we see that Jack would regularly drink heavily. Uh, we also saw the negative consequences of this habit on his family. Uh, Jack also struggles with anger. Uh, and uh, we see that this uh, an these anger issues stem from uh, his reaction to his father. Uh, and we see the likelihood of uh, that pattern of anger continuing across the generations as well. So Jack's, Jack has his hitting bottom moment. Uh, Jack's version of hitting bottom was actually three moments uh, that take place uh, before the events uh, depicted in the book, and we see him in uh, you know references and flashbacks and things like that. Uh, so one of these moments uh, is a scene in which he and a friend, uh, same friend who got him the job uh, at the Overlook, uh, were out drunk driving. They hit an abandoned bicycle and were terrified that they had run over a kid. Uh, the enormity of that you know, strikes him. Uh, another major turning point for the family uh, was an event when Jack lost his temper and uh, broke his three-year-old son Danny's arm. Uh, so Jack and the family moving to a new town and looking for a new job came about because he had lost his temper again uh, and attacked one of his high school students. And uh, yeah, that's as described. So this is a disgruntled student who was slashing his tires. And he found, I mean, the kid kind of deserved it, but you know, still a way over the top overreaction. <laughs> so and know, compounded well, by the fact that oh, yeah, I was just going to say it, it, I, I think King does a good job here of like so a little bit of self doubt and room for self pity in Jack because yeah, he did overreact, but then the kid accidentally hit his head on the curb, which wasn't. He wouldn't have happened without Jack attacking him, but that's not actually what Jack did. It's just an inter interesting scenario, I think. Right. And, yeah, and again, we're going to get into some of the uh, the differences between the book and the film, but I think this is one of the great things about the book. And one of the yeah. things that makes Jack as a character psychologically interesting is this complexity and the sympathy in King's presentation of him. So, uh, yeah, on many levels, Jack's a good man. You know, and he wants to be a good husband and a good father mm -hmm. and a good teacher and a good person. Um, we see that his love for his wife and his son are genuine. Uh, and earlier in his life, he's you know blind uh, to this you know poisonous legacy that he inherited from his father. Uh, he just sees himself as uh, you know friendly, easy to get along with guy who just you know sometimes loses his temper. 
Uh, he's you know also in denial, um, thinking that uh, his drunkenness is just him having some fun uh, with his friend, letting off steam after a hard day of teaching. Uh, and when he sees that the consequences of his addiction and his lack of self-control are far more serious than he had thought, uh, he is genuinely repulsed by himself. There is real inner conflict. There's a real battle. He's sincere in his desire to overcome his anger and his drinking. And uh, King's dis depiction of this inner battle, uh, I think, reflects very well many people's struggles to overcome addiction uh, and also generational patterns of abuse and the role that uh, self-justifying rationalizations and defense mechanisms play in that struggle. Enough, uh, enough me in psychology. Let's talk. Let's get back to <laughs> literature. So. <laughs> That was Richard, good, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, I think the, uh, I think that this uh, this inner turmoil, this inner struggle, and uh, the the playing up of the addiction angle is, I think, one of the great strengths uh, of uh, this work. Absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, uh, back to the shining as literature. Uh, Jay, do you have anything for us about uh, major themes and some tropes on display here? Well, as far as as tropes go, I mean, take your pick. There's literally dozens of them that you can pick out of the book. Um, you've got the abusive parents, because I would I would make the argue that in addition to to Jack's physical abuse, the, to some degree, Wendy is psychologically abusive toward Danny. Um, at least that's what I got out of it. You know, she doesn't always act this way, but she is jealous of the relationship that Danny has with Jack, and she at sometimes tries to play him off against each other. Um, you've got Danny, and I can't really think of any more innocent child in a, in a, in a book than Danny. You know, he is the epitome of innocence. He's done nothing wrong. He, he's not, several times it comes up to his age, like he's only five years old. What could, what can he do? Both, mm -hmm. both positively like to help his family or negatively, like, he literally can do no wrong. Um, you, as far as literature goes, you've got those arc words, um, ones that I wrote down. We've got the repeated or the repetition of the words unmask, the now the now famous red rum, and then for all of our Poe lovers, the red death held sway. There's probably a few others that, that I missed. Um, let's see... We've got the victims who deserve what they get in brief flashbacks about the, the spirits or the, the entities that are in the overlook. We learn some of their backgrounds and at least the ones that were given. Most of them kind of deserved what they got. Um, we're seeing them act malevol malevol malevolently, there we go, toward Dan, but they were just that same way while they were living. Um, let's see... We've got oh, we've got Chekhov's gun. Everything in everything in The Shining has a purpose. Mm -hmm. I I could not think of any anything that was mentioned or talked about that did not have further the story. Some of it was for a red herring. Some of the things that we thought might play a major role ended up playing a minor role, maybe only as exposition. But everything everything had a purpose. You've, uh, we mentioned Halloran earlier. You know, here comes the cavalry. Some, um, in his case, a little bit too late to stop what he had to stop what he had wanted to stop, but also just in time to help out Wendy and Danny there at the end. Um, 
you've got the the big bad and the bigger bad. You know, we've been dealing, we've been talking about how Jack is descending into madness, and he's the one that goes after uh, Danny and Wendy. But then there, toward the end, we realize that almost from the beginning of the book, he's been possessed by something from the hotel, and it hasn't been it hasn't been Jack in a very long time. Um, I could go on. There's a lot. There's a lot. Others. Um, you know, both of that, both of the parents, both Jack and Wendy, they're acting out of fear of becoming their parents. Jack doesn't want to, doesn't want to become his abusive father. Wendy doesn't want to divorce Jack because then that doesn't, that makes her just as bad as her mother. And as bad as Jack has been toward Wendy, imagine how awful her mother would have to be if she didn't divorce Jack because then she'd have to go live with her mother. <laughs> right. Anyway, um, we've got. We've got the uh, the alleged car that every that every uh, everyone seems to have. You know, it's on its last legs. It just needed to make it 20 more miles. In their case, it needs to make the the trip from from a signed winder up to up to the overlook. You uh, you get the idea that uh, the whole town is kind of in on the secret. Everyone in town knows that something wrong has gone up on the hotel, but they they hush it up. They keep it quiet because they need the money to keep coming in. Those are just a few of the ones that I that I wrote down are the few of the important tropes that I wrote down. Uh, would you have anything to add? I mean, I, I would echo a lot of what you said, especially about the uh, the, the foreshadowing and the Chekhov's gun and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so much of what ends up happening in the climax is given to us right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we don't, yeah. you know, uh, we, we see uh, Danny having visions of uh, um, being chased by someone who bangs into the walls, uh, but, you know, I mean, you know, by the time it happens, we're pretty sure that you know we know it's going to be Jack. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, we see the uh, uh, the frequent um, presentations of the uh, the Roke mallet and the the Roke court, and then yes, the uh, the the word red rum showing up. So yeah, it's there's a, a lot of this going on, and and one of the, you talked about uh, this you know information information being doled out. Uh, that's one of the things that I like about the way that uh, King does this. Uh, he'll just he'll he'll make a reference to something, and it's we know it's important, and we're mm-hmm. no it it explains a lot, uh, but it's not going to be for like another you know quarter of the book until we actually right. find out what's this all about. Mm-hmm. And and in the case of the first couple chapters, uh, the wasps, you could make the argument that you don't understand the significance of the wasps unless you read the first couple chapters of the sequel, Doctor Sleep. Oh, there we go. Hmm. So, I mean, I, we we did say we were spoiling with impunity, right? Yeah. So yeah. Okay. If, so if, if you want to if you want to talk you read, about Doctor Sleep, we can talk about Doctor Sleep. Just I'll just read, <laughs> I'll just just the first couple chapters because they were included in the book that I have. But in the in the first part of The Shining, you see uh, Jack trying to deal with with wasps that had built a massive nest in the roof of the hotel. And he goes in and he gets a, a bug bomb and tries to bomb it literally to smithereens. He goes back in. All the wasps are supposedly dead, puts it in Danny's room. And then that night, he ends up getting stung by, by many wasps. Well, at the end of the book, the hotel burns down thanks to an exploding boiler. And we kind of get the feeling that everyone has escaped scot-free until we read the first few chapters of Dr. Sleep and find that a few of those malicious 
spirits have followed Danny back to where he and Wendy are living. Well, yeah, and and if if I remember correctly, um, part of that uh, that climax scene when we see like a last glimpse of the evil shadow spirit rising from the the hotel, uh, mm-hmm. it's described as being kind of swarm like. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Doctor Sleep is quite good. Uh, I read it when it first came out several years ago, and it's a, it's a little bit more sprawling, um, and and plays it leans a little bit more heavily on some of the kind of tropes that king leans on through the intervening you know close to 40 years but it, it is quite good and uh and re- revisits that theme of you know multi-generational patterns of abuse and substance abuse yeah i haven't and, read it but my understanding is that uh you know danny has turned into jack uh he's turned into an emotionally unstable alcoholic yeah that that's in the first part but and, and a large part of the story is him getting his act together uh and then 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 uh, actually kind of taking on the role of a dick halloran for another child which is uh i won't spoil that it, it is quite good oh good so, uh, so we see the possibility uh, of uh, virtuous transmission across the generations as well as uh toxic yes yeah he, he definitely inherits a lot of what jack inherited from his dad uh but then is able to turn it around um and and well again i won't get into the Spoilers, and it's also been a few years since I read it. But uh, uh, I was going to add too that um, rereading this, rereading The Shining for the first time, and like I was trying to figure it out. I think it was twelve or thirteen years ago. Um, I, I, I am consistently uh, amazed at King's skill in the setup and the payoff. Because uh, knowing, you know, have, having read it once before, but you know, still it being long enough ago for it to still be a little fresh. Uh, I was very, again very uh, pleased and admiring of, of uh, the way he seeded a lot of what's going to be important later early in the book, which you know you take for granted unless you you read a bad book <laughs> and a, and with a writer <laughs> with a writer who can't do that. Um, I did want to say I know that I talked about tropes. I hadn't really mentioned any themes, and I did I did have one. If we want to move on to that, sure. Um, okay. So obviously the main theme that that sticks out is loneliness and saw and separation. Maybe disconnect would be a better a better uh, a better term for it because not only are our three main characters Jack, Wendy, and Danny, they're isolated from the world by by miles of road and snow and things like that. But they really do see themselves as alone in the world. They don't really communicate with anyone else. There's a lot of talking, but not a lot of substance going on. So they all spend time with themselves, and that proves to be unhealthy for all of them. Yeah, I was noticing that too, uh, especially the uh, until you start getting flat. The first hundred pages or so go by with almost no mention of other family. Right. Um, And, you know, as a southerner with one of those big tight-knit families you know that 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 absence was immediately apparent to me and especially now that I, you know I, i'm realizing anew how important that is uh you know and, or any other kind of network really i mean the, the the torrances don't apparently go to church uh you know they they are in a new place where they don't seem to know their neighbors very well at all and mm-hmm. uh don't you know jack is between jobs i mean there's it really is just the three of them, uh, this kind of unholy family in isolation. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of that uh, was reflected in their earlier situation as well. Um, mm-hmm. When uh, we, we find out about what's going on with uh, their previous life uh, in New England, uh, we don't see a lot of community. I mean, you know, Jack has right. his, his drinking buddy, and yeah. uh, Wendy has uh, her bad relationship with her mother. Uh, but, yeah, we don't, we don't see, uh, you know, Danny playing with friends or romping around the neighborhood. Uh, you know, we don't see, you know, either Jack or Wendy, um, you know, g- going to going to church or, um, you know, interacting with with neighbors or anything like that. Yeah. Danny does mention a friend or two early on, especially one friend whose dad lost his marbles. So that's his whole frame of reference for mental illness or going crazy. Uh, and of course, Jack has Al who gets him the job at the Overlook, but. I think quite notably, Jack will often neglect Danny and Wendy, uh, Danny and Wendy, in order to hang out with Al. Okay, moving along. Um, so, we've talked a bit about the novel itself. Let's uh, let's talk about some of the aftermath. So, uh, Jordan, how was this novel received by critics and by fans? Uh, I did. I, my 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 prep here is maybe a little bit idiosyncratic. Uh, I'm going to blame that on how much grading I'm doing this week. Uh, so <laughs> that's that's. Uh, that is on my students. Uh, I was able. It was actually. Well, let me let me start this way. It was kind of difficult to find old reviews of the because its status as a classic of the horror genre and as one of Stephen King's really great early books is kind of so secure. I really had to dig, and I was able to turn up like one review from 1977 in the New York Times. Okay. Uh, which which is. <laughs> Uh, one of those reviews that is, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, those old reviews you see for stuff like Citizen Kane where the, the review basically says meh. <laughs> uh, my favorite phrase is maybe, uh, let's see, judging from his latest novel, The Shining, uh, King is a writer of fairly engaging and preposterous claptrap. Uh, <laughs> com- <laughs> uh, compares him unfavorably to Ira Levin, uh, who I do know about. And uh, uh, let me see. Yeah, I've got the boys from Brazil on my shelf over there, and Thomas Tryon, whose name I have heard but I have never read. Uh, uh, the long suit is an energetic and febrile imagination and a radar fix on the young people who probably make up the large hardcore of the market. You know, so dismissing this as just what the kids are reading right now. Um, it, it is. It does actually have a few perceptive comments on maybe some weaknesses of the book because the book is not perfect, uh, but it is. It is mostly. Uh, yeah, here's the, here's the guy's conclusion. The reviewer is Richard Lingaman. Mr. King is a natural, but he lacks control. He simply rears back and then lets fly with the fireball and a lot of wild pitches result. That's a pity because his sheer rookie's energy is engaging, and in the relationship of Jack and Wendy, there is a core of psychological truth that might have been crafted into a subtle psychological chiller. For the horror, dear Brutus, lies within us, not in our ghouls. Which is a wonderfully pretentious way to end that. Yeah, so I mean, I, I would probably agree, and I think you know, King's success has, in some ways, at least in my opinion, as much as I like his books, I, I do feel like his success is a little bit of his undoing. Uh, I don't feel like he gets very tightly edited at all, uh, which is why he can turn out like two 800-page books a year. But I do think that pretty much misses the mark, and especially misses what makes the book great. As for fans, so that, that's that's all I was really able to dig up early. But of course, uh, appreciation appreciation has steadily mounted over the years, especially uh, I think thanks to the Kubrick adaptation. 
uh, which has I, I think Kubrick has actually helped King on two levels. One, he's put the put the book out there in a you know two hour format that is going to be immediately accessible to a lot of people who might not pick up even a, a you know kind of pulpy thriller. And as a measure of its influence, I mean, here's Johnny kind of became a meme before there was an internet. Uh, and then uh, also, also because King so famously hates Cooper's movie, uh, I think that has kind of kept kind of kept the engine on it turning over a little bit. You know, is because you know you can still dig up little bits of debate about whether you know the book is a or the movie is a good adaptation of the book, which uh, is better. Um, that kind of thing, and, and you know what the relative strengths of each are in comparison. Uh, so as for the fans, uh, my unscientific way of measuring this, uh, because it is it is a huge fan favorite. My my absolute favorite is the Green Mile, but just as a measure, unscientifically, I went to Goodreads, uh, which I'm very active on, and uh, I looked at King's entire listing of books, uh, which has uh, you know hundreds of distinct works listed on uh, Goodreads. I sorted them by popularity. Uh, and at the very top of the list is The Shining, uh, uh, with 997,000 uh, ratings and or reviews by Goodreads users. So that's – he's just shy of a million ratings on uh, Goodreads, <laughs> which is a – yeah. The, the next closest thing after that is It, which is 300,000 places behind. Wow. Uh, it – yeah, it uh, so, so Goodreads uses a five star system. The Shining is four point two one stars, which is really good uh, by comparison with a lot of stuff. You'll find you know books by or plays by Shakespeare that have like three stars. Uh, it has four point two three, so like barely edging it out. The Stand is four point three four. Misery is just under The Shining at four point one five. Uh, the Green Mile is at four point four, but the, again, The Green Mile only has only has a uh, uh, 227,000 ratings or reviews. So, I mean, it is the, the Shining fan wise is way, way out in front as far as how many people have read and enjoyed it. Uh, and it is right there in kind of the, you know, jockeying for first place among the first, you know, maybe the top three or four of his books. Um, and I, I think, again, justifier. So, I don't know. What would you all have to uh, say on that? Well, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I'm a stand fan. Uh, I like the stand. I also like some mm-hmm. of uh, some of his earlier stuff, like uh, Christine. Um, but I mean, you know, there's I think there's no denying that this is really up there uh, yeah. with uh, with his work, especially for such an early uh, product. Yeah, absolutely. I think it helps that it is a little atypical, like I was talking about. Again, the characters are pretty clearly from Maine or New England, but it is in an out of the way location. Uh, it does have a Tremor cast of characters because some of his other books can sprawl, uh, and in the stand that's an asset. Yeah, uh, and some other books it, it, it just gets you know kind of it, some of his other books kind of start to collapse under their own weight. Um, but The Shining is like right in this kind of sweet spot where it's you know it's it's not exactly got the classical unities, but but it takes place over a limited time frame and basically one location with a very small cast and the 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 plot proceeds pretty straightforwardly with, with some good surprises thrown in. Again, he was 30 when it was published, which is, uh, well, actually 29 when it when it hit the market, which is uh, striking. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, as we're heading toward the end here, let's, uh, you know, Kubrick was mentioned. Let's talk Kubrick. So 
the project of adapting King's novels and stories for film. It's an entire topic unto itself. We could uh, do do many uh, episodes on this. And I'll just go ahead and uh, throw in a plug uh, for uh, Horror Movie Podcast, one of my favorite places to go for in-depth discussion about horror filmmaking, uh, where they did a series of episodes on King's movies. Uh, so, end of plug. Anyway, still, uh, we can't really talk about The Shining without mentioning the Kubrick film adaptation. Uh, and so at this point, uh, so we're going to go a little more free form, throw it open for everyone. So uh, let's exchange our roke mallets for fire axes and talk Kubrick. Uh, and if we have time later, maybe we'll get into the 97 TV adaptation, but we really don't have to. That's good, because I haven't seen it. I saw it. It's It exists. <laughs> That's pretty much what I... Uh, I, I will say, given the uh, given the CGI at the time, so one of the things about the '97, they tried to make it more faithful to the book, and so we get topiary animals uh, who attack, but the CGI was not up to the task. Yeah, I've, I've seen a clip of that. It's it's like those those uh, the general auto insurance commercials. <laughs> uh, you know that the CGI in that <laughs> it looks about that it looks about like that. Right. I have to say, like I. I get why King doesn't like Kubrick's movie, because uh, it does strip the novel way down. Um, if, if you've labored over a book, I, I it, you know it does become your darling. But but you know, film and books, film and novels are, are drastically different media. And Kubrick knew Kubrick knew what he was doing. Um, and I, I I have seen King's criticisms of the book. I, I think mostly it just comes down to the fact that King doesn't understand how movies work. Um, which, if you've seen Maximum Overdrive, you'll you'll know. Um, that's the only movie Stephen King has directed, and it is uh, a a uh, if you like to riff on movies with friends, that is a very good candidate. Um, it I, I actually I, I as much as I like the book The Shining, I do think the movie actually improves on it, and it is primarily in Kubrick's very sharp eye for what the core of the story is uh, and also his control of mood because um, Stephen King's the movement the mood in the novel can kind of ebb and flow so there's these you know if you looked at it in like a uh, you know a, a chart you would see kind of rising and falling waves of horror or uh, tension uh, with Kubrick you get a single kind of I think steadily mounting, combination of tension and horror that finally explodes at the end and that's very very tightly controlled uh it's it's really masterfully done and and the thing that i think kubrick especially does very well is increase the incredible sense of isolation mm-hmm. at the over at the overlook because you know in the in the book you know because you're in the character's minds you can flash back and forth to different times different places uh, you get a little bit of what's going on in Florida with Stuart Ullman, the manager, and DeCalloran. Uh, you, you basically leave the Overlook once in the course of the Kubrick film, and that's strictly to get Halloran on the road. Otherwise, you are in those claustrophobic little hallways with the wind howling mm-hmm. outside the whole time. and that, you, you can't underestimate the psychological effect that has on a viewer of the film. Um, I'll, I'll stop there. I, I could go on about the movie all day long, but I, I think Kubrick sees what the core. I think he saw what made the book work, stripped out everything else, and really improved cinematically on uh, 
on uh, what King had created. What I don't know. What do you all think? Uh, I'm going to slightly disagree. Okay. Well, slightly. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's. I, I don't think anybody is going to argue that it's not uh, a cinematic masterpiece and that uh, uh, Kubrick is not uh, a mad genius. Uh, <laughs> I, I do see the merit in some of uh, some of King's criticisms, yeah. uh, especially when it comes right. to the character of Jack. Yeah. And like I said, one of the yes. things that I really yeah. like and I find really engaging is uh, that you start off with this internally conflicted but still, at many levels, good and decent guy, uh, and you see him... Uh, fight and struggle, and he fails a little, and he degrades a little more. And uh, we, there's an arc. There's a character. Uh, there's not a lot of that with Jack. I mean, we see Jack uh, in the first scene, and he's already. Um, you know, we can see there's a, a cruelty, a selfishness. Yeah. Um, you know, right from right from the get go. Uh, I, I see Jack Nicholson's character, and I can believe that's someone who's going to go on a murderous rampage mm-hmm. and uh, yes, yeah. kill his family. Well, if, even in the first scene, don't we see him? I, if I, I think I'm recalling it correctly, in the mo- in the film, doesn't he actually take a drink in that first scene? Like the the manager offers him uh, offers him a drink, and he says something like, "Well, I'll have it if you're serving it," or something like that. Whereas in the book, he goes he he takes pains to avoid it avoid that at any cost i do mm. not recall that yeah it's, it's been too long since I, I i tried to track down a copy of the movie to rewatch, but I, I wasn't able to before we recorded yeah mm. I, I own a copy i just i've been doing stuff and so i uh, yeah. we're spending most of our time talking about the book uh mm. right but yeah if you uh i mean the things like the uh, the scene where they're driving um I I wouldn't want to share a car with Jack. <laughs> yeah, you know, he's he's got this nasty edge to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's you know disrespectful to Wendy. Uh, and in the in the previous scene where he's having the uh, the interview, his self centeredness is just right on display there. Uh, he he talks about how oh yeah the family will love it and everything is great, but you can see that he he doesn't care. He just assumes that they're going to fall in line because that's he thinks it's that's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, I can see that. I, I I wonder if what's going on there is that because Jack is so complicated, but he is also so internal in the book. Uh, Kubrick kind of had to just pick one thread and unravel that for the film version. Because uh, the the Jack that you see in the movie is there, but that's not the only Jack we see in the book. Right. I kind of wonder if that's not yeah. what's going on. It, it does. It also doesn't help that Jack Nicholson just kind of has an evil face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this does seem to be a recurring theme with uh, the uh, with film adaptations of King's novels because so much happens mm-hmm. uh, in the interiority of the characters. Uh, even you know, kind of more you know, more straight straight ahead horror stuff. Uh, like Christine, we've got the you know, lot of lot of scenes that if you shot it in a movie, it would be someone sitting around thinking for about fifteen minutes, yes, and making right. facial expressions while while they think. Uh, but you know, you know, Cujo, we've got internal point of view from a dog, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, that, and, that, and that's a big part of what makes that book work for me. 
that right. I, I really enjoy that part. And that's you, you can't do that on film. So yeah, that's. I, I'm pretty sure that an actor of Jack Nicholson's caliber, though, could have shown us an internally conflicted good guy who becomes a bad guy. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I'd agree with that. Uh, speaking of uh, you know the adaptation to the medium, I, I do think Kubrick uh, a really good choice that he made for sure is uh, giving us a little bit. Well, first of all, he does really well with the ambiguity. Um, like I, I've seen, I, I watched a couple of video essays about this over the last couple of weeks, and and one of one of them uh, made a really good case for what makes The Shining the film so creepy is that everything is so ambiguous. Uh, especially when presented from Danny's point of view. And as a cinematography geek, uh, this is one of the movies that puts Steadicam on the map. Uh, it is it is a masterpiece for, for Steadicam filmmaking. This uh, this and Das Boat, I think, are what uh, really, you know, kind of cemented Steadicam's reputation as uh, those long hallway tracking shots. Uh, but anyway, you know, every time Danny encounters a ghost, it's usually presented from his point of view, and it's far enough away that, again, there's not supposed to be a person there, but you can't really divine their intentions uh, because they are so far, and you can't really see their expressions. Uh, and I think that was a very good visual way to translate the kind of constant stream of voices that Danny is hearing and the, you know, the the sounds that he's, you know, hearing and, and the, the various things that are kind of knocking around inside the hotel. And, and again, Kubrick was able to strip out some of the I, I think some of the, the little bits of sloppiness there and kind of sort of create a Russian nesting doll of these, you know, layers of madness so that, you know, uh, w Wendy's actually seeing evidence of the hauntings fairly early in the book, but in the film, it's not until she sees the notorious, <laughs> the notorious guy in the bear costume uh, that, that, right. that she's, she's actually privy to the stuff that first Danny and then Jack are seeing. Um, so I, I think it's, it, yeah, like I said, I, I get, King's criticisms and definitely grant the point on Jack's character, but I think in the translation from one medium to another, it's it's really excellently done. Yeah. And I, I had seen the uh, the movie uh, several times uh, before I had ever picked up the book, and so one of the things that I found interesting was just how many of the iconic scenes, the things that we think of uh, from the film, are just not there in the book. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there, there's there, there's no blood elevator, uh, there's no all all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Um, we 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 never see the creepy little girls. Nope. Yeah, there's so much of that stuff. And they are the creepiest it's, thing in the movie to me. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. so, okay, my my daughters. So I got three kids. Um, the oldest two are girls. Now, first off, I'm not letting them see this movie until they're like, like 40 or something like that. This is serious mess with your head territory. But yes. Somehow we were talking about movies, and it was probably, you know, talking about movies that I'm not going to let them see and why can't I let them see it and stuff like that. So I, I, talk, I talk a little bit about The Shining and how they should. So they decided they're going to start messing with me. So every once in a while... Uh, my daughters will just join hands, turn and look at me, and go, "Come play with us, Daddy, forever oh, no. and ever." <laughs> and it's eerie how well they've got that for someone who hasn't seen the movie. And I just got to go, "Don't do that." <laughs> Fantastic. Yep. Oh, yeah. You know where The Shining pops up over and over again? 
the Simpsons. The, to- the Toy Story movies. The, oh, yeah. Uh, the carpet yeah. in Sid's house is the carpet in the Overlook Hotel. No! And, uh, it is, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that strange, like, hexagonal, inter- that, like, interlocked hexagonal pattern? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, the most recent one, Toy Story 4. My wife and I wa- went on a date night this summer and went and watched it, and, uh, when Woody first goes into the old antique store and there's the super focus dummies pushing the super creepy doll around in the creepy baby carriage, there's a record player playing and it is playing the old, uh, you know, kind of jazz song that's playing in the Colorado room or the Colorado lounge, whatever it's called when Jack first goes in there and, you know, he hears music. Uh, it's yeah. I, I, that sent, that made the hair on the back of my neck stand up when I realized what that song was. So yeah, there's a uh, there's lots and lots of little shout outs to The Shining all through Toy Story of all things. Okay, interesting. <laughs> all right. Uh, on that note, I think we're we're past the uh, the one hour mark. Uh, so even though there's a ton more that we could talk about, we could everything that we did a, a little segment on, we could have just gone off for the whole hour on that one. But uh, right. Well, yeah. Yeah, let's go ahead and wrap this one up. Uh, so, listeners, thank you very much uh, for joining us for this episode of The Book of Nature. Uh, we are a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. You can find us on Facebook or email us at bookofnaturepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we appreciate listener feedback as well as suggestions for future episodes. So, until next time... I leave you with this bit of wisdom from Stephen King. If all else fails, go for the gross out. Talk to you all later.